Good morning, good day, good afternoon, whatever it may be for you. Welcome to the Motoring Historian podcast. My name is John Summers and, and today I'm going to be talking about cars with my old friend from school, Mark Gammy. I, I guess with this episode, um, what was front and top of mind for me, and what even prompted me to want to do these podcasts in the first place, was I had that day with the Western automotive journalists, hashtag Wadge Media Days. Um, yeah, I had that day with them down at a hotel in Half Moon Bay where they contacted manufacturers and laid on a, a bunch of cars to drive and you go down there and, and drive them and it's a pretty good test route. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was something worth talking about and sharing. Yeah. So which stuff did you drive? Well, you know, I sent you that list before, you know, before we talked here about, and that wasn't everything I drove. I drove this Jeep Compass or something as well, but that just didn't stick in my mind. So I didn't want to talk about that particularly because there's nothing to say about it. But I sent you that list before. Of that list, what are you most interested in? Um, well, I mean, in terms of the sort of stuff I might... Well, let's read the list out. So we've got the Lucid, the Tundra, the i50, the BMW i50, the BMW M4, the Mercedes GT53, and the Maverick. Um, so, I mean, bluntly, I probably wouldn't buy any of them, but I would be most likely of any of those to buy the M4. Yeah. It, the one I had was green. Well, that's all bottle green. Um it it was uh it was like it was it was a shimmering, really bright green. And and it was the one with the full on buck tooth grill. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 uh and a convertible. And I guess they're badging it as competition now um so it's like it was an m4 competition um that is different to a standard m4 though isn't it because they did the for what for the m2 there's the m4 the m2 the m2 competition and then an m2 cs as well ah well you're you're better informed than me then because this this was this was badged as competition and i i suppose when i first got in it it had already been set in sports mode and the journalist who was getting out of it showed me how I could like toggle the um, different, you know, the steering setting and the throttle setting independently, which was this really nice sort of slidey touch screen. Yeah. And, you know, you, you would, you would hope that it, it felt like a racing car in sport plus, And it really did. Um, and it revs just in such a, you know, the shifts are like a Le Mans car, you know, that kind of really sharp um, cut off and uh, all around, you know, it, it was OK. So the buck teeth, they are polarizing, aren't they? Um, you know, I mean, and I said, I don't to, mind them, to be honest, but. It, I, it, as you said to me years ago, sort of Mercedes and BMW tend to do something and you go, mm, I'm not happy about that. And then about 18 months later, you like it. Yeah, I mean, I guess a, a couple of things on, on the Mercedes kidneys. I mean, my understanding is it's done for the Chinese market. 
my wife's comment on it was that it probably didn't look too bad on an SUV, especially an SUV in a dark color. And if you think about what actually sells nowadays, the SUV in the dark color, that's actually a lot of what they sell. So in other words, there's not too many four series that are being disfigured by that, you know, by that big grill. There's an awful lot of X5s and X3s and all of that kind of thing that are, you know, flying off the shelves, presumably, as as a result of it. Um, I don't know, um, you know, the, the BMW rep, I had dinner with the BMW rep the night, you know, before the driving. And uh, I put to him what my wife had, had said to me. And, and he said that the um really the the kidneys weren't big and and really this was not a new thing this was in fact an old thing because if you go look at a picture and you i mean bohm is doing now of of like a 1938 328 they have that very big kidney the kidneys years ago were that big so his comment was was that you know it wasn't a new thing it was uh it was an old thing but uh you know i the the, the fact is that, I that, yeah i suppose i mean but this green one um it actually wore them pretty well and if you're driving a convertible bmw in that lurid green you are not you know you are a retiring wallflower you are not so you you know what i mean to, to me it, it, it seemed um yeah I'm, I'm not bothered by them and overall i like the car although you know i drove it on the pacific coast highway on a really sunny day and i drove it on a piece of the pacific coast highway that i know extremely well from riding motorcycles on so an environment where you, you'd be surprised how much you can actually you can't test a car like the m4 on a piece of road like that but you you can get a great deal closer to it than you know a drive around lo your local roads might might anticipate that the test so, so the test route this is worth saying actually the test route was down pch and then you turned off pch and it was like a little winding road inland and then which which you might approximate to an english b road and then it put you on to uh, a road that you might approximate to be more like you know a B stroke C road in that it was crowned and it had a couple of hairpin bends and it had gravel and then it just a little bit on the edge of the road um, and then it dumped you back out on PCH and and PCH is this you know uh, a, a section of road where you you can you, you know I I you know. I, I didn't necessarily do this, but other journalists may have achieved autobahn speeds on pieces of, of road. I definitely have never done anything like that on a motorcycle definitely. and certainly didn't do anything like that in any one of the cars that, that I drove today. I'm telling you, you would have liked this M4. This this would have been uh, a car. You know, actually, I, I take it it was paddles, was it? It, it was, but you know what? I don't, I just don't. I don't fuck around with them. I just don't touch paddles. I don't even use the switchable automatic in my wife's like E46 three series or in my AMG Mercedes. I don't, I don't even, I just, I, I don't mind, I, you know, 
I don't mind stomping the gas and waiting a, a, a minute. And and with this BMW, you you would just have it in, you know, I just had it in the sport mode all the time and it was great. Although I did find myself thinking, would it be that enjoyable around town? And I'm not sure that it would. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to test drive. Well, I've got, I haven't spoken to the dealer, but the, the, the one in Farnham's got four. So I'm going to go down and test them too tomorrow morning. Um, but um, I can't bring myself to get paddle shifts. Um I mean, I want it because we're going. I'm going out to the Pyrenees this summer um, to spank whatever I've got around, and obviously I've done that in the Megane RS a lot. Well, not Pyrenees, but the Alps and you know, Spa and stuff like that. So I want something a bit different. And I was looking at the M3, and like the M3 is great, but you know, most of them are a paddle shift, and it's a, a, I quite like the size of the M2. It's a bit smaller and a bit more, um, you know, less horsepower. I grant you, but um, we'll see. The 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 the, the uh, the fluff on them is that they're a bit jiggly um, in the ride, but you can get a Litchfield pack for about 1,800 um, quid that uh, will alter the suspension. And if you so desire, they'll do a bigger intercooler and a chip as well to get you up to about M- M2 competition spec on the horsepower as well. So I'll be interested to see what it's what that's like. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I like I like all the BMW stuff, but, um, I, I mean, I wouldn't do it. A ragtop. I did actually consider that the same dealership that's got the M2s has got um, an XKR, ten-year-old uh, XKR, um, obviously soft top. Um, and I did contemplate having that for the lols uh, driving around in the Pyrenees, and I thought, thought it'd be pretty good. Uh, but then I considered that with petrol at two quid a, a litre, I might not be able to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think the petrol's the least of your worries with JLR product. <laughs> well, they are the reliability is just not there. It was one owner from know. you, ten years old, full dealer history. So I mean, I hear what you say, but I thought yeah. for a six, for three months it might last. Yeah, it would it would for three months, and and uh, you know I'd I'd be tempted. What year is the M three that you're looking at? Um, it depends, like 2017, something like that. M2, M2. M2. Hmm. Huh. So I also drove on this PCH test day an electric M3, basically. Oh, yeah. Which they badged, which they badged. I, I can't remember exactly how they badged it, but it's the I, 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 on the list I sent you, I called it the I-50, but it's, it's not, it's like the I-50 M plus or um, the M40 I, I, but either way, right? It's basically a three, like a three series size sedan that's differentiated by the fact that the door handles are flat. And if you look closely at it, all the styling of the front clip is totally different because the M, the M4 and this electric guy were parked next to each other. And the rep kept saying to me, I'm really interested in what you think driving the two of them back to back. And, and I'm telling you, Gammy, that electric one drove like a bmw it didn't drive like a tesla it didn't drive like a leaf it drove like a bmw and by that i mean that my my wife's car you don't need to put it in sport mode for it to hold the gears so if you're like climbing a hill on the on the freeway and it's like drop the gear to climb the hill if you come out of the gas for a moment it won't gain a gear it'll just hold that lower gear because it knows as a BMW driver, you're likely to want to come back in the throttle again. It's one of those little things where I just think it's a, it's a well-designed transmission. Other, other transmissions don't do that, although it's old and clunky now. This BMW, this electric guy, he held the brakes in the same way. 
Hmm. Is it the i4 M50 or whatever? Yeah, the i4 M50. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, sorry, I'm not. I mean, it's total bloody alphabet soup, isn't it? The the, the point is, it it felt, it 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 did not feel that different from the M4. It didn't have the soundtrack. It didn't I mean, feel that. The question that everyone always asks at this point is, what's the range on it? Well, maybe not everyone, because range anxiety is still the big issue with um, electric gubbins. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I can't remember because I don't worry about that kind of stuff. We will. That, that's something for us to put in the footer, isn't it? Yeah, for yeah. Me to, for me to work out or for you to for you to Google up now. But I mean, it, it was governed. It, it was governed to 135 miles an hour, allegedly. Um, and uh, I was told it, it got there with uh, more alacrity than the M4. So I've just looked it up. So allegedly, 318 miles. Allegedly, yeah. Well, I measured I mean, according yeah. to the WLTP, who I'm sure is a stand-up organization, uh, yeah. test cycle. And there's yeah. no history of German cars ever fiddling with tests. With, with those, yeah. But but look, even, even if you only get 300 out of it, that's still enough to alleviate most range anxiety. But, you know, here's, here's an interesting thing with this electric stuff, right? I think one of the best reasons to buy a Tesla is, at the moment, is that you get to use the superchargers. I don't think there's, you know, I don't really like Teslas, so, you know. But I think, imagine buying your Taycan and then arriving and having to wait in line behind all the other people who've got plug-in Nissans and so on and Priuses, you're in like, whereas if when you arrive in the Tesla, you're in your own private line. It makes a difference. That, that makes it, except on the occasion when there's already somebody on the Tesla supercharger. And then it's like, you know, you have to like, wait, it's, it, then, then it's like, you know, waiting outside the ladies' loop. The line moves way slower. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and range anxiety is one of those things. I mean, it's for, for general usage, it makes no difference whatsoever. It doesn't matter because most people can go to and from wherever they're going on a daily basis and just plug or charge up at home. Um, but it's, I mean, I read an article recently about um, some guy tried to drive, he tried to drive round Wales, or did he just try and drive from London to sort of like Angle to Anglesey and back, something like that, um, and really struggled. Um, and you know, he was happy to sort of stop and spend an hour here and there charging up. But it was little things like, you know, if it rains and you put the windscreen wipers on or if you put the air con on, you know, the the, uh, the range dives and all that sort of stuff. So, and of course, availability of charging spots. But um, I mean, look, for me, they don't make any sense because of the holidays I do. And I can't be asked to spend that much time sitting around on the side of the road somewhere in the, in the middle of nowhere. But um, for most people, that shit doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, the, the the whole notion of the 300 mile range, it, it's, you know, most people's commute is a fraction of that. If you really sit and look at what a practical electric car would look like, it, it would probably look like a golf car that, that had like a windshield and doors. Because, because really, you don't need to, if you live around town, you don't need to go more than like 30 or 35 miles an hour. And and if you live, I guess if you're suburban, I mean, it might be a bit more that you, you might need to. But my point is, right, even in a suburban run, the the 50,000 mile, seven year old leaf that maybe only has a 50 mile range now 
that's fine because most people's commute is like 10 miles there and 10 miles back. And the key is the key thing. You need a second car. And most people have that, right? So if you have a second gas-powered car or the, the flip side, and it's like that. Did you read that thing I wrote about that weird three-wheeled Electromechanica dude? The Electromechanica Solo? Did you read that thing? No, I think so. Um, well, I was... Dude, dude it's, it's like it's a one-person car. It's like a trike. So it has like... And, and it's about the size of a smart car, about the length and size of a smart car. Electric... To drive, it's just like a car, but there's like a door on both sides of you. It's kind of weird. Kind of weird. Certainly took a little bit surreal. Um, yeah. Anyway, so this BMW, in comparison to the Lucid, was kind of forgettable. The Lucid has 1,100 horsepower. Yeah, I read about that. There's an article in Evo this month about it. Um, so go on, then. What was your take on that? Well, it's more exciting on a Jixxer, I'm telling you. When you come in the gas... It's more exciting on a Jigsaw. Yeah, well, um, I mean, motorbikes are more exciting, but yeah. Um, but it's pretty fucking exciting for a car. I will say that. Um, I guess, you know, one thing that was really special about the experience was that um, the evening before, or the, the, the event was spread over two days and there was a sort of evening meal. And, and the evening meal was at this weird kind of, of like Western ranch setup. It was like, it is, it is, it's less like a Western ranch and more, it feels like you've stumbled onto a film set, but of a Western, but so probably a Disney Western, you know, if you did, that's the, the, mm-hmm. um, Western almost journalists do a number of, of events there. I wish I could remember the name of the venue, but it, it's not important. Well, anyway, I got talking to the Lucid design team without realizing it was the Lucid design team. And I talked first to um, a a middle-aged woman who, you know, I I don't remember, I don't actually remember her name, but uh, she was obviously involved in the design. She introduced me to two younger people who were also involved in the design. Um, And then subsequently it turned out when she was presenting, she was the, the chief designer. But what I thought was fascinating about it, about and about her, was the 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 she was she she positioned herself as and it was a design term I wasn't familiar with, um, CME or CMA. It was like colors, materials, and you know aesthetics or something like that. It was either way. The point is that the car was designed from the inside out, not the outside in, and it was designed with a thinking about well it was it was born with what she described as california luxury which is you know so so it's got this giant moonroof so the material that the the you know the the glove box is made from recycled plastic bottles right yeah the whole thing um, you know that furniture store that they have in California that, that my wife buys stuff from, Restoration Hardware? When you sit in it, it feels like Restoration Hardware. Um, it is every bit as spacious as an S-Class inside. And it has that. I mean, I sat in that, um, you know, I I, I, I sat I set totally separate story. I sat in at the back of the Maybach 
recently and and it felt every bit as as spacious and as airy and as comfortable as that either in the either in the front or the back um so yeah so the other people that she introduced me to was the the guy that did the interior design and then the girl that did the exterior design the girl that did the exterior design was was and these these are people in their like mid 20s and and what the chief designer woman was saying to me was that you rarely get the chance to create a brand language right we were just talking about the bmw kidneys weren't we and we would mm-hmm. say so so when bmw designed that i4 m50 or whatever it's called um i was just saying you know it's great because it drives the same way as my wife's old bmw there were these not only visual design cues that BMW designers have to stick to, but there's whole ways that the vehicle has to be engineered to feel, to fit the, you know, BMW design ethos. With Lucid, there was none of that, none of that. So I said to them, why didn't you do an SUV? And they were like, yeah, if you want to establish credibility, you need to do a luxury car. And they're very... Establish credibility with who? The buying public. In other words, if you want to do a Lexus, if you want to do a Genesis with, you know, Hyundai's Genesis sub-brand, if you want people to take you seriously, you have to begin with a luxury car. In other words, you have to take on the Mercedes S-Class. And that's, they're reluctant to do that comparison. But that's where you need to think about this car. Um, which then brings you back to the fact that that's the ambiance, the giddy up from, you know, autobahn speeds to, you know, or from, from, you know, you know, from American freeway speeds to far beyond that is astonishing. The other, the other dude I met was the chief engineer guy who used to write for, one of the car magazines. So I kind of knew the name from, from that. It was a surreal experience because I, I, when he introduced himself, I thought I vaguely knew him. But anyway, um, he, uh, he said that we, we don't publish the like 70 to 120 mile an hour time. You know, we don't like market it, but if we were to market it, that would be more impressive than the zero to 60. Um, yeah. So um, the future is now. That was was how I I felt about it. I I was, um, firstly, how cool to be in the same room as the three designers and to be chatting with them and for them to be talking about this concept of California luxury and creating a whole fresh design language and, you know, all of that. And and then you know the following day to be able to get out on the highway and and uh, actually experience it uh, a, a little bit. Um, I don't think you'd have wanted it. <laughs> I read the article in the Evo magazine and I can't pretend it particularly excited me. Uh, there were some nice things about it. I like the sort of story about how they based it on an early M5 and they wanted it to be that sort of like you know usable performance and um, sort of. Yeah, the CEO, the the designer told me the CEO had one and they would go out and drive the roads that we were going to drive in this E39 M5 
every time they were trying to make a decision about how to engineer how the lucid should feel they'd be like let's let's just take that e39 up in the hills yeah and there's nothing wrong with that i mean yeah it's um it's a lot of money though um for something that i oh yeah i don't want to like shit on the the, the, the design but I, I don't find it particularly exciting um and I'm sure it's not trying to be particularly exciting. But, uh... it's, more, it's more exciting close up because your first thought is fresh design and all they did was that jelly mold. But y- y- it's, it's, it, that's why this inside out ethos is important. And that's why this California luxury thing is important because it, it's this idea that you don't, this is, this is luxury, but not, expressed in the way that Rolls Royce do it with, you know, lots of opulence and, you know, wood and leather and all of that. No, no, that was the last century. You know, California luxury is understated. Yeah, I hear it. I mean, where are you using this performance, though? You're not taking it on a track, are you? So unless you live in Germany, you can't go that, you can't really use it. No, no, you, you, and and that's why they don't really lead on on the performance. The 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 vast majority of lucid soul won't be eleven hundred horsepower. They'll be eight hundred horsepower or four hundred horsepower. Yeah, makes sense. This this eleven hundred horsepower one, it's almost a bait and switch. It's like they've come to market with the GT three but you're only going to be able to buy an S or a Carrera or the, you know, or the basic car. And literally like it's, it's yeah. True. I mean, Porsche was deliver the turbo S first or something, don't they? For yeah. I mean, I, I, something. So if you can't yeah. wait, you have to spend I mean, the expensive with this, one. With Lucid, it's, it's the way that Porsche do it where, you know, the motor sits on the rear axle. And then if, if you want the faster one, there's a motor on the front axle as, as well. Which is different from the way that I, I remember. I don't know what Ford do, but Nissan, the motor's on the front axle, which is a bit like meh. And then, you know, you can make it all wheel drive and they put the motor on the rear as well, which, you know, I know I'd rather have it rear wheel drive. And, and you know, that, that BMW, um, the, I, I, the, the, uh, that I 50 affair. I, I kid you not, it pins you in the seat. Mm-hmm. A launch at Sport Plus, or if you stomp the gas at like 20 or 30 miles an hour, it, it pins you in the seat. And I didn't mess around with the settings on the Lucid. I'm sure you could have done that as well. I mean, it was it was literally, it it, it was, it was, you know, it's pinned you in the seat. As I say, if, if your only experience was other cars, it would have been life-changing. But because my experience is sports bikes, it's, you know, the 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 visceral reaction is is there but but sort of uh, but sort of less so i preferred the lucid to the bmw i didn't say that to the bmw rep um and with hind you know looking back i uh, the m4 is the car that i i remember the most and and enjoyed y- you know what else i enjoyed right and we've not talked about this yet um the toyota tundra capstone now, Google this guy up, right? Because when you first look at him, you're just like, oh, he's a Toyota truck with a big grill. But I was walking around the car park the night before, 
And when and I, I snapped a photo of the interior because the interior looked like it was a Lexus, not a Toyota. And of course, that's where American trucks are going, that they're, they're luxury cars. But my God, Gammy, this thing was spectacular inside. So the following morning, um, I, I, it was the first vehicle I drove. And, and the rep said to me, make sure you floor it away from the traffic lights. I kid you not. Make sure you floor it away from the traffic lights. Well, well dude, it's a hybrid and a turbo. And when it launches, it's like a cross between a Toyota Le Mans car and a Dodge Ram muscle and a, like a Dodge Charger muscle car. It has that kind of of and it pulls like that really like uh, to far beyond anything that you might a, be able to safely use on the road. Um, it also has this cool little graphic like turbo boost graphic that shows so you can see how it's using the hybrid and the turbo to make this super compelling launch. I don't know what the gas mileage is. I mean, I didn't sort of worry about that too much, but I, uh, you know, so, and, and it's just, and, and, you know, to all intents and purposes, it is a luxury car, but then when you want to tow something, you can do it easily. When you want to move motorcycles, you can do it easily. Um, when you want to, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's like, all right, it's not a three row SUV, but you know, if, if, you know, my in-laws come and visit all of us and our luggage can fit in it easily. Um, yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, I loved it more. I loved it so much so that it almost distracted me from wanting a, a dually Ram, um, which I still kind of want, but, uh, but yeah, it was good. I mean, it, I mean, it looks it looks nice. I mean, I, I mean, I live in the UK, so like American trucks. I mean, I like them, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's like most people over here who buy, I don't know, um, a, a sort of soft roader bike. You know, they want it for the look. They don't take it off road. You know, they might do a fire road or something like that once in a blue moon and convince themselves they're bloody doing the Dakar. But like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I do either, but like. That, that's not why they buy them. They buy them for the style. Like, and you know, do, I mean, do most Americans actually use their trucks for towing, or is it Madianage? Because if so, what's the? I think I think there's a, there's a I mix, mean, I see right? The, the you know Americans love boats and jet skis and and that kind of stuff, and they love camping and you know. So this camping school camping trip that we did recently that was like driver it's like drive up camping. You know, we we were the only you know most people have trucks and tow a camper. You know, that's that's just the way a lot of Americans like to to vacation. So, you know, yeah. So the Maverick, have you read about that? I know this is, again, not a relevant for. So, no. so this is is in uh, in some ways. Right. I think this is as cunning a product as the Ford Model T. And it's, it's like in a that this electric Mustang, the Bronco and, and now the Maverick. These are three vehicles that have really you know the the you you you're wait the waiting list for them is months and months now because they're so popular and Ford have just really captured what American consumers want at the moment. So the Maverick's normal size pickup, like it's 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 so it's what used to be the Ford Ranger, yeah. But where the Rangers the Rangers still around mm -hmm. 
and is is just a smallish you know pickup the maverick is aimed at somebody who would otherwise maybe be buying um you know they start at 20 grand it's a two liter hybrid that's about 200 horse um and it's you know it's peppy enough i mean obviously in comparison to the other stuff i drove it didn't feel that peppy and the base model the uh the the some of the fittings are just just so cheap you're just like guys the door handle looked like it was the interior hand rest for you know my parents 1977 mark one ford fiesta that was literally what i thought of when i put my hand on on the handle and the test car that i drove at the weekend um had was it was color coded it was a higher trim one so there's two there's one with like 200 horse i think that's a hybrid and then there's another one that's gas only that's a bigger turbo and and 300 horse or something but um you know i just thought as an alternative to a corolla or a civic as you know um i i just i just uh i just get it as a great piece of of uh of product design um yeah so it's just quite an interesting thing uh yeah i mean but i mean i'm looking at pictures of it like you know if douglas bardo is your kid and you want him to sit in the back all the time no problem but like you know there's not a lot of room in the back is there um oh no no it that's like your extra cab rather than your yeah yeah this is this is not a family car this is uh uh you know, room for people in the back seat in a push, or room for room for little kids. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. Oh. I mean, that's what they they do. Sort of, they do the they do the full crew cab, don't they? Which is like a proper back seat, and then they do extended cabs where there's like a little fold down seat. So, do you remember Mark's Tundra? Remember when we picked you up in Vegas yeah, that yeah. time? Mark's Tundra it had mm-hmm. a sort of little extra door that opened up. That's the size of cabin that that maverick is uh is going for <laughs> the day that we picked you picked me he picked me and me and uh alf up um and uh alf was a bit surprised that he was standing on his guns in the footwell <laughs> yeah yeah shotguns in the footwell yeah 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 well that is uh that is the man in question so um I see now CNET, I've skim read a CNET road test of the the new Nissan Z. Um, and I cha- mm. I'm i chatting with uh, with um, Michael Shanks, that guy I work with uh, uh, at Stanford. He um, is still doing some work for, for Nissan. He, I, I did that project with him a couple of years ago now, and but he's still doing work, work for them. Um, you know, you're a long time, two time, Z owner, long time 350 Z owner. What, what do you make of this new one? Um, uh, I think from a lot of angles, it looks a bit blobby. I don't think it's for sale over here. Um, It'll come. It might not. To be honest, probably not. Um, I don't like it enough. Um, it just if it, it sort of feels like they're trying to do, I don't know, quite a lot with the design, sort of homage to all sorts of different things. Um, it doesn't quite work for me. 
I just think the 350 is a better looking car. I just need to get that one fixed, to be honest. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, because I had the 350. I've got the 350, and Kepler will always have the 350. I had the 370 and then wrote that off. <laughs> but uh, hey ho. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I think Nissan have lost their way a lot lately. Well, the R35 is, I mean, I watched a commercial and, and the R35 is still there as the halo car. And and you're like, wow, imagine if BMW was still using the E60 M6 as their halo car. <laughs> yeah. Like that's how much times have, have changed. But I mean, I've, I've the book about Carlos Ghosn, you know, the chairman of Nissan who like escaped Japan mm-hmm. in a in a bloody box like pretending to be some some yeah. amplifier speakers the i the 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 book i not read it of course um but yeah um about the whole like detailing the whole like escape plot um yeah, but back to the car um i feel like it's um you know it it's i wanted original ideas that car's the halo car i wanted original ideas and you were like it feels like it's elements of other cars I, I feel like they're like trying to be, you know, the 370 was too much of an evolution of the 350. They should have been more radical, but it was a facelift. It was a, you know, it's a mass market Japanese product. They were always going to do that, do what it took to to sell, you know. And, and, you know, we know how the 240 was diluted through 260 and 280 and, and, and through then the 300. But, you know, the final z31 300 zx's they were really something different you know they really the old platform had life breathed into it i feel like you know i wish they'd done something a bit more radical is 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 my thought um you know have you compared it to the um the offerings from the competition i mean the uh the toyota is a dramatic design um you'd have a supra before this no probably not um but well, I wouldn't have either, to be honest. Um, I quite like the Supra, but it doesn't. I mean, I haven't driven one. I'd be interested. To well, drive what's one. the alternative? Um, the alternative's but... like a a secondhand Boxster, isn't it? Like a nearly new Boxster, or what else is there? Here, they're always pitched against. You know, in the states, they're always pitched against Camaros and Mustangs, and there is no way I would ever have a Nissan Z car over a. a Bustang V8 or a Camaro SS, if that's what I could could buy instead. Yeah, I mean, I've driven a lot of Mustang V8s, and I like them, but they're not sports cars properly, in my mind, in the sense that they're not sharp enough. Um, the handling's too baggy, even when you have it in sports mode. Um, I mean, I'm talking about the standard 5-litre V8. I'm not talking about like anything with the, you know, one of the special editions. Um and they always feel a bit, they just sort of feel a bit wobbly. Um, they're plenty punch, plenty of, plenty of straight line go. Um, yeah. Yours have, yours have been rental cars, though, haven't they? Rather than, if you were stepping it yourself, you could do a track, you could order a track pack for them. And, and you know, I, I don't know, though. See, those, those track pack things, I, I'm, you know, I always feel, and this test day confirmed it. I'm not a sport plus guy. I like sport. I like it to feel, and I, I, I like the throttle response to be sport plus, but everything else, I, you know, the handling, I don't need to be sport plus. I don't need to 
feel like the wheel's going to fall off every you know every pothole. Oh, agreed. I think for American driving, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense to have like a manual over there either. I, I there's too many cars trying to take things away from you in inter in terms of interactions with the car and the enjoyment of driving, and uh, you know you have to struggle to find ones that let you do that these days. Um, so. Um, Hence, tooting, fooling around in M2s and not wanting the, the paddle shift versions um, and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's in, in America, I would definitely have an auto and, you know, having a GT3 Mustang or something like that, or whatever the version of it has to come over the GT350 rather or something like that would be great. Yeah, it's the 500 now. The 350 okay. was always more the track car. The 500 is the drag car. And the, but so the, the one they've done at the most, so the, three, the 350 that they were doing was a stick. And it had that flat plane um, Voodoo V8 that revved to like nine grand. Yeah, that's the one crazy. I wanted. Um, yeah, that's the one that you, the one they do at the moment has more horsepower. It's like 800 horsepower. But, it's just, but they do the Mac 1 as well, don't they? They do the Mac 1, which is, or even if, if you just got a GT with the track pack on it, or even if you didn't get the track pack, you could just do aftermarket stuff. You could get it to a stage where it was, you know, how you wanted it to be. I guess that's, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's, there's an aftermarket for Nissans as well, isn't there? I'm just, I don't know. In America, I I love Mustangs and Camaros. Um, yeah. I mean, the little so thing you, that car, like those rear lights, no, it don't work for me. I mean, I know where they're coming from with it, but it just doesn't work. So you're looking at this M2. Are you now off Hyundai Ns? Um, I mean, look, it, it depends how much I want to spend, doesn't it, really? Uh, if I trade the, the RS Megane in... Um, then it's just, yeah, it's just a case of how much do you want the personal loan to be to cover the gap, um, and you can make a huge argument why I don't need anything more than the the i thirty n. Matt loves his. Um, you can drive it harder more of the time because you're not in danger of losing your license every time you put your foot down. Um, but I'd like to get back. I mean, the the Z is is a work in progress, sitting in the garage with its hundred and seventy clicks, and it's got a reasonable amount of stuff I need to do with it. I've bought the um, bought the trolley jack and the axle stands and all the bits and bobs that I need to start getting that stuff going again. Um, but uh, I, I would like a rear wheel drive car, and if I'm going to go out and blast around the Pyrenees, which I am, that, that's all booked now. Then, um, you know, I'm driving it there. I'm driving it back. Uh, I want a relatively small car. Um, most of the time, it's just me and Angie in the car. I don't need a, much from the rear seats, and I can fit like the nephews and nieces in the rear seats if I want to. Um, three hundred and sixty or three hundred and seventy brake or whatever it is seems seems perfectly adequate. Um, so, and it's new enough that it's still got some warranty left on it. I'm looking at one with about twenty k on it, so it's been. If I can get a one owner one, pretty well run in, you know. So uh, yeah, it's difficult to find anything else in that sort of bracket that offers you 300 plus with a stick and a rear wheel drive um outside of bmw really because yes you can look at something from porsche but it's more expensive it's older and it's slower um and yes it's probably slightly better built and maybe a little bit dynamically sharper at the edges but how often am i at the edges so not that often so it's um and look i mean it's I did two track days at Spa and Brands and a bunch of other places with the Renault. I've done, a, you know, I really enjoyed that car, um, but uh, it's, yeah, it's it's long in the tooth now. Really, I, I just don't like the, the idea of it as a long term ownership proposition in terms of you know feeling that the things will go wrong in it. Just a, a little feel about that. Um, so uh, yeah, I think the BMW is probably a, a decent bet. Yeah, for, for me, um, you know, because um, there's that great 
independent BMW specialist in San Francisco, Fedras, because we've worked with them for ages. You know, at, at that point, I'm more comfortable thinking about, you know, a 2013 M5 than I am thinking about, uh, you know, uh, Panamera Turbo or E63. Um, you know, I have that independent Mercedes guy, but he's like one standalone guy, whereas Fedris is is uh, is an infrastructure there. And I feel like if you're going to do, um, you know, for me, that's a reason to stick with with BMW and 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 uh, yeah, I and you know the the your your to your point of you know BMW offer to me they they offer um, yeah you need to spend a lot more money to get more performance in a Porsche um, yeah for any for a given bang for the buck the BMW is going to be nearly as good as you say nearly as good to drive as the Porsche. Um, and offer you a good deal more power. And for me, ease and maintenance as well. Of course, there are independent Porsche specialists. I've just not tried them. And that will be a whole new adventure to try and get the right mechanic. And of course, you know, the argument might be, well, why don't you just buy a newer car? But, you know, I, you know I'm like, I always try and use as much of my budget as I can to buy old horsepower rather than buy new, um, new reliability. Well, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're driving to Avignon, staying there for a couple of days and then pouring across the bottom of France into the Pyrenees and then back up the left-hand side. Um, and you know, even though the place we're staying in Avignon is like, oh, be careful at narrow streets, be careful of having a big car. So you know, the M2 kind of fits the bill in a lot of ways. Um, that said, I was feeling a little bit more comfortable speeding in France in a French car. So, you know, I am losing yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I always feel that. That's uh, I, I, when I was not that I have a speed, just to be categorical, though. But you know, in theory, yeah, yeah. If if, if one's going to be pulled over, always better to be pulled over in domestic product. That's agreed. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I, so on the subject of things BMW, I'm sitting here looking at um, John Garcia's BMW 1150R, oh, yeah. which is final evolution. If you know that classic BMW motorcycle design where the motor is like horizontal. So this is like the final iteration of it in the sporty mode. So it's like naked, but it's, you know, and the R is sporty and it's like a 16 valve. It's a four valve head rather than a two valve air head. So, uh, yeah, he was very enthusiastic for me to try it. I don't like it. <laughs> um, what's the matter with it? I'm sorry. Why don't you like it? Well, Ollie keeps repeating this, and now I've I've soiled the whole bike with it. But the exhaust note is like a wet fart, and I just can't get that out of my it's mind. Not endearing, no. <laughs> it's and and you know I, because I I just recently had that Ducati off John, and um. I all I've done I've not been out on the freeway I don't think I've been out and out of third gear in it but I've just been out and ridden it around the neighborhood and it is just such a lovely bike to to ride I totally get the v-twin thing now the the um it affects me the way Ferraris vintage sports racing Ferraris and Maseratis at Pebble Beach it affects me in that way because it's got the welded tube frame and it's got the same Velia instruments and it smells the same 
when it warms up. And there's just something about the power delivery that's just absolutely spectacular. So I was waxing lyrical about how much I love the Ducati. And then it must have heard me because it started leaking gas. So um, obviously Dana's over the moon about the fact that the house stinks of gas and the air purifier is like going crazy and saying the air is like terrible quality, like worse air quality than it was, like worse air quality than Beijing, <laughs> thanks to, you know, this one motorcycle, um, you know, leaking gas. Well, so John hypothesized that um, it was a bit of dirt because he cleaned the carburetors but he hadn't cleaned the fuel lines. So he thinks a little bit of dirt got off the fuel lines and then got stuck in the carburetor and was just holding one of the needles open because it has two carbs and the upper one was leaking. It was very easy to tell where the leak was, was coming from. And it, and it didn't do it at first. It sat for like 24 hours before it started to leak. But then when it was leaking, it was, you know, there was a definite piddle and the stink was, was complete. You know, it was like giving, every, giving us all a headache. Because the the garage is downstairs and all the water, all the you know the fumes were penetrating upstairs. So he was like, "Oh, I'll just take it out for an Italian tune-up," you know. Which you know, I get why that works, right? Because you're just going to blow all the dirt through through the carburetor. But the next time I saw him, he'd done bloody two hundred miles on the bike. I was like, "Geez, dude, scrub my tires in for me." But yeah, so. Uh, so he left the BMW, and that's why I had the that's why I had the BMW. So I took it out and I rode across the bridge in in the sun the the other morning. And as I say, the uh, it's very comfy and it starts nicely. And of course, it's super super smooth. But dude, that's not why I I ride motorcycles. It's it's uh, yeah. No, I can understand it. Yeah. It's got a nine grand rev line, which on that BMW M4 seemed like a lot, but when you're used to like 14, you know, it, yeah, on yeah. a Jigsaw, you, you're just, uh, you're just spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. My CBR goes to 13 or something. So yeah, no, I can see, see, see why it would feel low revving. So on the subject of things, sports bike, did you watch the TT? I did. Yeah. I watched, I watched some of that. I watched a bit of the Northwest 200. Um, and of course the ones I guess you don't get up over there, the Cookstown and, um, stuff, but, um, yeah. Um, I mean, it is, it is difficult to watch, I think. I mean, I really, I enjoyed it, but I'm not... And the, the coverage was good value. But, you know, the, the the sticking point for me this year was obviously we sponsored Boothie and the poor guys in fucking hospital again. Um, but the, the one that got me particularly was I thought idly on the second to last day, um, I didn't watch the sidecars. And I saw that there was... I thought it was a brother pair, but it wasn't. It was father and son. I thought, I hope they're all right. And then the next day, they're both dead. Yeah. Um, which is a bit... I mean, I know I'm getting old now. I'm giving a shit about people. But uh, still, it's it's um, it's difficult. Um, no, no, I, I did my, you know, I have the little, you know, it's not cars and coffee because we drink beer and it's in the evening, but we do a sort of like people on the block because there's that guy across the street with that Cuda and the Mustang and the bloke down the street with a couple of Ferrari 308s. He had just done a thousand mile tour with a bunch of with a like some San Francisco car club, not not Ferraris, but he'd taken his that black really early three oh eight that he has. And he was like, I'm gonna be like hanging outside, you know, eating chips and drinking a beer. Come along and join me. So Ollie and I strolled down the street and 
we we looked at the uh, we looked at the Ferrari there, and and the the guy that does he's really into motorcycles, engineer, loves racing, really into electric stuff now. So he has like an FZR six hundred that he put an electric motor in years and years ago. Not my bag, but you know his bag. He, he drives a Chevy Volt. You know, to engineer. It's an engineering passion plus you know a background of 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 motorcycles. And he was like, you know. I'm all about the freedom of riding. I'm all about being in, con- you know, you being in control of your own destiny. But that is a blood sport, and it needs to stop. I wouldn't go that far, but no one's making them do it. But it is, it does make it increasingly difficult to watch. Um... But dude, Gas Monkey Garage, you know, sponsor Hickey, and Hickey wins. Spoiler for people who haven't mm. watched yet, buddy five. Of the six four event, four. he didn't he didn't match Hutchie, but he did um, match um, um, one of the other gentlemen who'd done it before and don't want Phil Phil McCallum, yeah, that's right, yeah, the, the bloke in the nineties, yeah. in yeah, years ago, like before before we were watching, basically, yeah, no, um, yeah, I, I, um, I mean, he looked he looked the absolute class, although obviously Michael Dunlop won the one on the six hundreds, but still, I mean, you know, the um. They uh, this was was it one of the races on the, uh, the not the senior TT um, but one of the races the previous one of the one of the um the super tw- was it the super bike race? I can't remember one of the earlier races was a really really good race because there was what a couple of seconds between them the whole way round which is absolutely ridiculous um, but uh, and it, it's amazing and epic in every way um, and it couldn't it couldn't and it, it'll survive but it, it couldn't survive anywhere else could it. No, no, it couldn't. At the, uh, in any other environment, would, there would be the pressure to stop it. It's because it's put on by the government that it can survive. Yeah. It's like the Mille Milia in the pre-war period. There, there were a lot of accidents that just never got reported, that never made the newspapers. I'm, 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 I'm sure there were many more deaths than were ever re- recorded in that period. But because um, the fascist government in Italy was so into motorsport at that time, they just, you know, they just turned a blind eye to it. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can believe that. But you may not know this, but the Mille Miglia was actually stopped in 1938. It didn't stop with the war. There was no Mille Miglia in 1939. And then there was that one in 1940, but that was on closed public roads. That was the one that took place actually after the war had officially started. Um, but it was closed. It was a much smaller route. It wasn't It wasn't the fact that the full the full thousand miles, but there was an accident in 1938 that meant that the event was, was stopped where, uh, where it was like a level crossing and a car bounced into a crowd at the, at the level crossing. But no, you, you're right that because the Iron Man government's like allied with it, it, it will survive. It's just because the guys actually doing the racing um, think they understand the risks, but really they don't. And the guys building the bikes and, you know, John McGuinness and Michael Rutter, us, the old blokes, we really understand the risk. The young guys, they, they don't. And you need to think about how you and I drove in our 20s to, to get to see that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something, there's, there's something, there is something not quite ethical about guys in their 40s and 50s you know, building motorcycles and organising a race for guys in their 20s to race and die in. There is something um, 
you know, because because even if the riders themselves might say, I understand the risk, the loved ones who are left behind, you know, and that's that's the part of the story that you 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 have to that I think you're more likely to take into account, you know, now you're the wrong side of of, of 40 is is that, you know, the uh, the wags to use a. Uh, you know, to use uh, uh, the, the term of the time, the wags are the ones that, that really suffer. And uh, I guess as I'm on this mental tangent, Farina, the first Formula One world champion, when uh, old Gregor Fiskin, who was editor of Road and Track, or Gregor Grant, the, the, the dude that was editor of Road and Track in the 60s, said to him, why has there never been a proper biography why did you never try and write an autobiography Farina's comment was ask the women ask my wife they're the ones that really understand it in other words this isn't a story of heroism on the track this is a story of injury and slow painful recovery yeah yeah I mean and I, I and it's it it's as I get to be more of an old fart myself um I find myself looking at Connor Cummins, two cute little girls coming up and hugging him and he's third in the TT and thinking, I just hope that doesn't end in tragedy and they have their dad, you know, I mean, it's, it's so, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, I, uh, you know, I, John McGuinness, every time you see him interviewed, he will always end by saying, I hope everybody gets back safe. Yeah, I won't try and do an impersonation of his of his accent. <laughs> but it's on his mind all the time, and I was thinking about that before we came on the call here. Oh, Michael Rutter going off first and being passed by all those young lions. How much discipline did it take not to chase them? He knew his pace. He stuck to it. He's fifty. Like yeah, he's yeah. And McGinnis and Rutter faster than you or I'll ever be. Oh, ever be? Yeah. So you know, at that, so it becomes. Uh, yeah, the sport becomes more about staying alive than about winning. Staying alive is the win. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, but uh, no, it's it's yeah. I mean, they're heroes. It's just um... yeah. I I don't know. I I you you implied a feeling of slight guilt because we'd sponsored Mike Booth and he's lying in that hospital in in Liverpool. Uh, no, now. I, don't, I mean, no, I, no. he'd gone anyway. He would have gone anyway, and I'm happy to sponsor him. Like, I like the guy; he's cool. I like 44 Teeth. I like the stuff that they do, and you know, he, no one's making him do it. And I saw an interview with him a few years ago, um, talking about how, um, or maybe it was last year. I can't remember, but talking about how you know his dad had said to him when he first thought about going years ago, "Nah, if you go, I'm not coming with you." Um, and it was his dad's way of saying, "You ain't ready." Um, and he said that he thought on reflection, his dad was absolutely bang on the money and that he wasn't ready and he wouldn't have learned it properly and he wouldn't have taken it as seriously as he should have done. Um, but this is the lottery of the event. You know, you can do all that um, and be, and you know, again, a rider way out of my echelons in, you know, or whatever be, um, and um, still have a bit of misfortune or one little mistake and, you know, multiple operations on your legs later and, you know, he's... Misses is in bits, I'm sure, but um, I mean, I know I hope he's all right. But I mean, it's it's difficult not to sort of support people to, to to go for their dreams. I mean, I, I just don't know where I stand on it now. Do you remember when we were at the Nurburgring and we'd done a couple of laps, and you moved out of that phase where you were like, right, I you, you know the sighting laps were done, and you were now thinking, right, I can get down to business, 
get down to trying to find the places where I might, where I might be faster. And at that point where you're out of that, I'm just sighting, I'm just getting a feel, I'm just learning the lines. If you're out of that mode and you're in a, I'm trimming the lines, I'm trying to hold the throttle flat for a little bit longer, I'm trying to break a little later. At, at that point, you are putting your, well, it's it's like, um, I don't know who said this about motor racing, but it's, it's a true story. It's like leaning out of, a, seeing who can lean farthest out of a high window. You know, it, it's it's going to end with somebody falling. Probably you, potentially you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I won't profess to have tried, if you like, uh, any sort of percentage really at, at uh, the Nürburgring at all, um, just because the place terrifies me. I, I like the idea of it, and I enjoy driving around. It's great fun. Yeah, this, the, the, especially with the Nürburgring, which which other track days don't really have, is that you know you've got a, a sort of touring carousel of random accidents driving around with you if you know what i mean there's all sorts of people who are more than happy to sort of have an accident with you where you don't you didn't do anything you just came up on someone at the wrong point or someone made a mistake or someone was inexperienced and trying to drive you know to their car well i mean you know when we went for my stag do you know we that guy porsche came off on the truck and chatting to his mate it was um standing at the side of the road said that you know they've been followed he, he'd uh, his explanation had been some guy had come past him in a um in a in a nine eleven S or and he'd had a GT three and he said well I've got a faster car and followed the guy and obviously you know he didn't know the track as well and wasn't perhaps as good a driver and then his car's the one on the truck um, with the front left all smashed in um, so you know even with the best of intentions but so I, that said I, I did try a bit at Spa um, and uh, but again everyone's going one way it's a more select group I guess less people on the track there's less sort of tourist fart and kind of folks who've just turned up in a you know whatever they happen to have drove, driven home from work so you know it's yeah box on camera van yeah you were fast at spa i made a conscious decision to not try and stay with you because i had that same feeling like you know i rented a megan rs um so i had that same feeling that i'm in the same car so i should be able to keep up with you with hindsight i hadn't worked out where wasn't there some power mode where you could make it make more power? there's a button on the bottom you right yeah you can press the button. yeah i didn't know i didn't know i didn't know about that so i was so my, my excuse <laughs> for why i fell off the back of you was uh was was that i wasn't um i want that uh was that i uh i didn't find the power switch but but my favourite bit of that was when we, we let, let everyone out of the pits and I, for a joke, started weaving from side to high, side behind the pit car <laughs> to, to inverted quotes, warm up the tyres. And uh, you were, I could see you laughing in the rearview mirror and then all the Ferraris and Lamborghinis and stuff behind were all doing it as well. <laughs> yeah, that was something of a tactical error, though, in our slow cars being right out at the front. It meant that you 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 spent the whole time. I spent the whole. I spent the first three laps of the session just watching in the rear view, trying to let people get by before I wanted to yeah. concentrate on the lap. But you know what? I still. I, I was talking with um, some of my students about this. Was was that um, the the run? Um, you know, Blanchiment. That mm-hmm. um, you know that that blind left hander that you can just, you you know, you're approaching it at more than 100 miles an hour and you can just turn in and go straight through it with just a lift. That one is without question the most terrifying experience 
I've ever had on a track. More so, so one before Blanchimont. Is Blanchimont the one right before the grandstand? Yeah, Blanchimont's the fast left where the, in F1 they take it flat, and I'm sure in loads of other disciplines they take it flat as well. I never took it flat. Um, but that's the one, then you come down from there put, put to the chicane onto the start. Yeah, but yeah, Blanchimont. The one, the one before Blanchimont is a sort of doesn't, I don't think it even gets named. But that one, you can go through flat. And as you say, I'm a, I am was approaching, I think, my last lap at about 100 or 110, 110, 115 miles an hour. So, I mean, I'm not sitting anywhere in the world of light on it. But it is still shit scary turning in at that sort of speed because you just don't do it. I mean, when do you do it? I mean, I'm... Yeah. Well, that's what they were saying in the practice for the TT is that they were just getting used to the fact that on short circuits, you might exceed 150 miles an hour numerous times on the track but you're not there all the time and you're not trying to steer the bike through curves at north of 170 or 180 miles an hour. So the whole business of there's a whole like maneuvering thing that has to, you know, there's a whole like adjustment that they have to go through to get used to that. And that's basically what practice is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, um, Leaning because yeah, leaning the bike at that sort of speed. I mean, I, I've never done it at those sort of speeds. Um, I mean, I've done did the Ron Haslam track day at, at Donington a few years ago, well, a lot of years ago now. And that I mean, that was great fun. But even there, you know, you, it's um, scratching the surface. I mean, I, I was fat and slow and remain fat and slow, and uh, it would take an awful lot of effort to be anything other than fat and slow. But uh, I still enjoy it. And but even then, you're leaning over at sort of. 70, 80 miles an hour through a corner. I mean, goddamn, it focuses the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just noticing that we've talked for more than the hour that, that I thought I'd, <laughs> I'd allocate to this to this first thing. And there's even a topic left over for next week. So uh, so let's save that. And, uh, cool. and I, I appreciate your time speaking with me today, Mark. And uh... Pleasure. Well, I'll see you next week for Festival of Speed. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Looking forward to the Festival of Speed.